Do you believe that fathers should provide for their children? And is surrogacy just expensive human trafficking? Yes and yes. You might be a Christian nationalist. No. <laughs> they talk about this guy, Wolf. In a December post, he called for ending sex education in schools. No problem there. Totally. Ending surrogacy and no-fault divorce throughout the country. Agree. Also pretty great, yep. This is a clear incursion by the government into Americans' private lives. <laughs> Wildness. We don't tend to say Catholic nationalism. It's that natural law can recognize that these are universal truths. The political article takes a stab at it. While it is a core pillar of Catholicism, in recent decades, it's been used to oppose abortion, LGBTQ plus rights, and contraception. Recent decades have a 5,000 years of Western civilization natural law. <laughs> All right, everyone. Welcome back to the Loopcast. Today, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Josh and Erica. And today, we have a pop quiz. I know Josh is a fan of trivia. Uh, do you believe that fathers should provide for their children? Uh, and is surrogacy just expensive human trafficking? Yes and yes. If so, you might be a Christian nationalist. No. <laughs> uh, the writers, writers over at Politico discovered uh, natural law the other day, and we thought as Catholics, we might be obligated to speak on that. Uh, but we have a few updates. Number one, this will be my last episode in this office, uh, which is crazy. Uh, you guys can't really see, but I'm currently recording in a generous eight by eight phone booth right now, and we will be moving to new digs. So exciting updates coming in that direction. Um, that's going to be a lot of fun. And then other update. So uh, that St. Patrick story that we talked about earlier this week, uh, with the blasphemous funeral that was held there. Uh, there's been some very interesting legal updates, but then also Cardinal Dolan has kind of chimed in at this point. So Erica, I'll give you the chance. Uh, which of these would you like to dive in on for the St. Patrick story? Well, actually, I'd like to start with the update from the transgender organizers of the event in the first place. This this was jaw-dropping. There was a press release just before we were recording um, this week, and in it, the GLITS, which is Gays and Lesbians Living in a Transgender Society Organization, founded by the same organizer who stood up and said St. Patrick's is stupid because they don't even know she's trans. Same person, uh, same man, G-man. So stood up. This, this uh, press release says that they were so hurt by the fact that the cathedral cut short the funeral mass and turned it from a full mass into a service mid-flow. This hurt the mourners and the family and the the drag queens who were in attendance so much that they are now demanding not only an apology from the cathedral, but also from the Archdiocese of New York itself. They're, they're going to hold a big press conference, big rally, uh, Wednesday, February 21st, demanding that I mean, this is classic abuser 101. Can I just throw that out there? That like, your mother made me beat her. It's her fault. She Josh, should apologize go? to me. So are that's my favorite update. you go to the, the press conference Holy and rally? You, sh you should go and ask some questions. I could drive down. My big pregnant belly, show up. I am the queen. So that was one update. Cardinal Dolan also on um, of, his, of his own, he brought it up himself on a diastin radio program, podcast program, uh, praising the priest who presided over the funeral um, for switching midstream, for saying, no, we're not going to do a mass. Uh, in fact, on some of the recordings 
when we reported Monday, it was still unclear exactly what had happened. But apparently, the cathedral had agreed to do a full funeral mass with the liturgy of the Eucharist. And right at the beginning there, you can hear over one of the recordings um, a male voice saying, uh, no funeral service, no mass. So they stopped it after the liturgy of the word and the eulogies. Um, so there was well, some still kind of adjustment. Service, no mass, right? Exactly. Funeral service, no mass. So there, there was an adjustment there by the cathedral staff midstream. And Dolan came out and, and was praising them for that, called him a hero, I believe. Well, I mean, here's the thing. You know, if you're Cardinal Dolan, this is a massive embarrassment to happen in your signature church. It's a landmark church, very... America's church. Mm-hmm. In, yeah, right. Americans all across the country hold it in high esteem. And so it makes sense for him and to rally his troops to try to spotlight a priest who did something very good in a very horrible moment make sure that there wasn't the celebration of the Eucharist. Um, so, I mean, I can't fault Colonel Dolan for trying to find, you know, what, a glimmer of good news out of this, but it remains obviously a debacle and an embarrassment. So um, I get it. I get it that he's trying to find the, the good here, but it's overall just very embarrassing, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I guess to that priest credit, like, could you imagine if they went through with the Mass and they were handing out the Eucharist to these people that clearly have no regard for anything sacred. I mean, the things that would have been done to Jesus is pretty shocking. So I do want to give him credit for that. Um, but we kind of dug into this and and maybe we can cut if this doesn't need to stay, but uh, the legal ramifications of potential deception. Uh, so there's potentially some illegal activity uh, with precedent in deceiving someone to get into their space. I think it was CBS that had kind of a case law precedent for this. Uh, Josh, do we have any update on that potentially pressing like a legal action against these people? Yeah. I mean, again, the case is, you know, what happened, this was back in the 1975 or so when a, a gay activist used false pretenses to get into the CBS studios and interrupted a live broadcast. And so that person was held liable for uh, uh, trespassing because they, they, even though they were allowed onto the property, they did it under false pretenses and they did something that they weren't, they were not supposed to do. That's exactly what we it appears we have going on with St. Patrick's Cathedral, where gay activists or trans activists entered into the space under false pretenses. They wanted to basically have a, a pep rally right in our face and to dance around like uh, a bunch of clowns and make fun of us. So, you know, uh, we've sent a letter to the attorney general of the state of New York. And we're saying, hey, you have a responsibility to uphold the law here. These people who might be your political friends, nonetheless, they entered into this property under false pretenses. And that is a sacrilege for what they did. And they need to be held accountable for violating uh, the law and trespassing. So we'll see what happens yep. of it, but I'm not I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess, interestingly, this, of course, will force the hand potentially of the church if they were deceived or not. So if they weren't deceived, because there's been people who are like, okay, this church is a regular tourist attraction. It had hours blocked off in the morning. There, it doesn't seem like there's any indications they didn't know a large crowd was going to show up. All this, of course, is conjecture, but this hopefully will push for some more truth. Um, because well, really, if, they knew if it was large... done intentionally, there needs to be accountability. Whether right? there's like a large crowd or not doesn't really matter. If you're going to have a funeral, you're going to cut off the area for tourists anyway because you don't want people walk, you know, with their cameras and clicking and taking pictures. It's a beautiful church, you know. So people, that's what people do during, you know, unless there's a mass going on. So yeah, you know, you just want to oh, okay, come. 
So I, had, I sort of understand why they would, you know, close close it down in in a sense for that during that time. But um, yeah, it is going to kind of uh, it is a an interesting moment because if if the if the if the trans group says we didn't enter into false pretenses, we were we told them this is what we were going to do, which is what they're most. Right. That's what their most recent press statement, they shifted because the day of the service, they're all saying, we, they're all deceived. We got them, these dumb Catholics. They're so dumb. Um, and then in the press release demanding an apology from the archdiocese, it completely flipped. And now the organizers, the trans activists are saying, oh, no, they knew exactly. We told them her name. We told them to look her up and her work and they welcomed us. And now they're being so cruel and we need them to apologize because we're hurt yeah. or something. Well, it's one thing to say Google Google this person so that we can claim that we tipped you off. Like, in other words, you should you should double check this, you know, verify because we're trying to deceive you. Like, you know, I mean, were you trying to deceive us or not? I mean, it seems like they say one thing one day and another the other day. So yeah, wait the the people throwing a party in a sacred space. You think they're really good at communicating clearly and telling the truth? Mm. I mean, also not holding my breath on that one. Yeah. Um, Attorney General but, Letitia James, too, I, just to just to mention <laughs> the the person that would actually have to bring the investigation and the charges would be Letitia James. And so, like Josh said, while we're not holding our breath, we definitely are going to keep pushing and putting on the pressure and bringing publicity to the fact that, that this they did break the law. I mean, by all accounts, they broke the law. I suppose that a group of people that have the audacity to come into a sacred space of a Catholic church and rub it in our faces and say, you know, hey, we're going to, you know, we hate everything you stand for and ha, you suckers, we got in here and now you're a bunch of idiots and oh, by the way, apologize to us. I mean, the sheer amount of chutzpah, that's amazing. I, it's like, it's just, a, I mean, I don't know. I Hey, if this is working out well for you guys, though, maybe you can go down the street to the mosque and try it out there. Mm. Why don't you give that a try? Sounds good. So as we teased before, we've all recently discovered that we're Christian nationalists, which is interesting. Uh, so Politico wrote this piece. It's called Trump Allies Prepare to Infuse Christian Nationalism in Second Administration. Uh, and then they talk about it. Spearheading the effort is Russell Vaught, president of the Center for Renewing America, part of a conservative consortium preparing for Trump's return to power. Now, when I read this article, of course, what came to mind is I think it's David French said that Christian nationalism or maybe white Christian nationalism is the greatest threat to America, the greatest domestic threat to America. Um, so it's a it's a very like loaded term, of course. And and when I thought of it before, you know, I think of uh, they really try to paint that term with like QAnon, really crazy uh, out there, conspiracy theorists, neo-Nazi. Like they really try to tie this to the worst possible things. But then I started reading about this guy, Russell Vaught, and I was like, wait a second, you know, Christian nationalism is all that crazy. But if you would have just read this political article, uh, you would not have a good understanding of what it's really about. So I guess let's just let's just start with the article. Why was the, the article so egregious? I mean, I remember just feeling like I was in the twilight zone reading this one. Yeah. So listeners might remember back because this was a year and a half ago, The Atlantic ran that rosary article talking about how if you're Catholics who pray the rosary are domestic extremists and like tend toward terrorism and militarism. This had a lot of the same vibe for me. I felt like I was right back at the Atlantic. So the, the author's definition of Christian nationalism, um, they say Christian nationalists in America believe that the country was founded as a Christian nation and that Christian values should be prioritized 
throughout government and public life. Now, again, you like you read that, and as Christians, we say that doesn't sound so bad. I mean, right? They're That's Christian chill. principles, Donate it. Christian values. Yep. I mean, I'm thinking like Sermon on the Mount. It wouldn't be bad if we went back to a little yeah. Sermon on the Mount. Beatitudes, you know? Beatitudes, kind of like chill. It. Yeah, it's all right. Give but give everyone way... a Beatitude adjustment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The way it was framed, however, for the rest of the article was clearly that when you use the word Christian, it is existential threat to the naked public square, the secular space that somehow government has to maintain at all times. So I did a little digging, went down the rabbit hole, um, and the sort of key moment when Christian nationalism really started to take off in the mainstream media as this buzzword for theocrats um, who want to just bring us all back to The Handmaid's Tale. Oh my gosh, Handmaid's Tale. There's a 2020 book during the pandemic, it comes out called Taking Back America for God by Andrew Whitehead, Sam Perry. And there they really leaned into Christian nationalism is nativist, it is white supremacist, it's based on the patriarchy, wasp theology, which none of us are wasps, so we're more like wasps because we're Catholic, theology, militarism, and all of that, all of that imagery that you get um, from, you know, neo-Nazi rallies, etc. And the Politico author and authors like Whitehead, they really draw these cynical conclusions. This is from Vaughn's own article kind of responding to the book. He says they draw cynical conclusions based on their own worldview to explain the policy positions of many conservatives and Christians alike. And some of those policy positions that they go on to attack in the article, I think you alluded to these in our pop quiz, Pogo, but things like requiring fathers once the paternity test has been has shown that this is their child requiring them to actually pay child support or be involved in the upbringing of the child this is a egregious theocratic violation of americans privacy how dare if you if i could demand- even just do the <laughs> if i could do the honor of reading it Please. exactly because this is really good they, they talk about this guy uh wolf and they're like he deleted several posts on x that detail his views as if he had really bad views and then they go on to say he has a more extreme outlook of what government led by Christian nationalists should propose. In a December post, he called for ending sex education in schools. Like, no agreed. problem there. Uh, surrogacy, ending surrogacy and no-fault divorce throughout the country. Agree. Also pretty great. Yep. Agree again. As well as forcing men, quote, to provide for their children as soon as it's determined the child is theirs, end quote. Cosign. Yeah. <laughs> now he, he ends this paragraph. He ends this paragraph with his problem with it. This is a clear incursion by the government into Americans' private lives. <laughs> Wildness. Wildness. Actually, this is the worst piece. Worst so, piece. Good as bad. Right, exactly. And it's like, we already have um, child support. We already make men pay for their raising of their children. The government is already involved in everyone's lives in the worst of ways. It's just extending it for the nine months for the baby, but you know, you know, when the baby is in the womb. I mean, that's the only difference that, that the Steve Wolf's getting Yeah, exactly. At. Uh, actually, there's a really good article about this because Tom and I were, were rapping about this um, the other day and he was like trying to pin me down on the definition. And so I just thought I'd do a little more research did. for you, Tom. And I, and I dunked on him. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> Not on tape. No one <laughs> believes it. So here's the thing. I went and found this article that Stephen Wolf himself, because he wrote a whole book on it and the case for Christian nationalism. And he wrote an article um, in the American mind and he goes, but what is Christian nationalism? Of course, there's no official definition, no confession or consensus document I can point to. At this point in the evolution of the term, the definition is a matter of dispute. 
it needs first to be defended against obvious falsehoods, you know, like this political political article, of course, before it can be satisfactorily understood. Christian nationalism is not about, about divinely inspired constitutions, nor exclusively chosen people, not conflating ancient Israel with our one's own country, nor a Christian founding narrative, nor confounding church and state. Christian nationalism, he says, refers to a Christian nation being conscious of itself of, as such, seeking its temporal and eternal good by means of law and custom. Nationalism is resolute patriotism. Like, okay, that makes a lot of sense. And here, the biggest thing to understand about this whole movement towards Christian nationalism is to understand it, of course, like anything else in its context and its history. Like the sub headline of his whole article here is Christians need the will to act. And you can just feel that this whole movement for Christian nationalism comes out of a, a feeling that for a good 15, 20 years during the debates in the 90s and 2000s, that first decade there, that Christian conservatives were pleading their case as we're debating, you know, gay marriage, right? Which is a falsehood. Of course, there is no such thing as gay marriage. As there, that debate was raging on marriage, should we redefine it to include things that obviously shouldn't belong in it? Then it was, then we lose this debate publicly. And, and a lot of times I think it's because our side didn't even fight, it felt like. Certainly not a, a yeah. Republican politician. No wills. And then we were clamoring, begging for the right to at least in our own pockets, our own little, uh, own little areas to be free of this, you know, Goliath uh, new sexual mor- morality that wants to impose itself on everything like a, like a bulldozer, right? Because the gays don't, they start out saying, we just want to be have freedom just like everyone else. And then it didn't take too long before so they're like, make the that. cake. Right. It's like, what in the <laughs> world is going on? We want your churches and your sacraments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so in the, in the wake of this, where we're, we're not even free in our own little enclaves, you have Christian thinkers thinking to themselves, wait a minute now, we should stop just fighting for freedom in our own little playgrounds in our own little enclaves, our own little islands. In fact, don't we have an obligation to fight for what is good and true throughout our whole country? Like, why aren't we making the case to everyone? It's it's not that, but for example, it's not that trans surgeries are bad for my children. It's not that my children shouldn't receive hormonal treatments or have their genitals mutilated. It's that no children should have it. We have to be able to say, no, no, no. You don't have that right to do that to any child because it's child abuse. Yeah. No, you can't do that to a, to a baby in the womb and kill it. That's that's immoral. And so we got to move off this thing where we're just fighting for a little pocket of Christianity in this tiny little reservation and say, no, 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 wait a minute. We need to, to invoke these principles and fight for a culture that is not madness. Yeah, and that like the term uh, human flourishing really comes to mind. Like even if you want to extend it to other parts of government, like the idea of no fault divorce, like divorce, of in no fault divorce, it's not been good for anyone's human flourishing. Like if you go look at any of the statistics of what happens to the kids in that situation, what happens to the partners after they they dissolve, like the no fault element of it is not best for human flourishing. So why not make the Christian case basically to 
promote marriage in the culture, promote marriage from a government level. Like those things are best for everyone, not just me or you. And it's like, because we know these things are universal truths, right. like the natural law. We're going to get oh, back into that Oh, and I was probably, just going to say, because the political authors, they don't just stop at saying Christian nationalism because they, they at least had the awareness that when Catholics argue this in the public square, we don't tend to say Catholic nationalism. We don't tend to say, okay, well, as Catholics, this is what Catholics want to do. Like Josh said, I think Catholics have a much more robust tradition that's that's adopted and maintained by men um, like like Russell there, but that that it's not just about you know because God told us the Ten Commandments. It's that the natural law that's written and inscribed in the human reason and human will can recognize that these are universal truths about human flourishing, about what a just society is, and that it is incumbent on anyone, regardless of their religious affiliation, to follow the natural law if they want to be happy and flourishing and have a good life. And the political article takes a stab at it. They're like, okay, so then some of these Christian nationalists, they, uh, they believe in this thing called natural law. Here's how they define it. All right. Natural law is the belief that there are universal rules derived from God that can't be superseded by government or judges. While it is a core pillar of Catholicism, in recent decades, it's been used to oppose abortion, LGBTQ plus rights, and contraception. I'm like, recent decades? How about how about 5,000 years of Western civilization natural law has opposed these things? Honestly, those Christian nationalists, they just made it up to persecute gay people. I, yeah. It's crazy. I mean, those dastardly, exactly. this political article, this political article is just glorious because it's like watching a broadcast in the 1960s when man is landing on the moon and Walter Cronkite is walking you through it, like in case you don't freaking understand that we're landing on the moon. It's like, now he's coming down the steps and Oh, very. He's about to take a step, and is by the way, the moon is a very powdery thing, and he's going to be able to bounce. Like we get it, guy. Just shut up, okay? <laughs> I just want to watch <laughs> the, the thing film. Is, but that's what's it's happening. It's like Tony like, Romo in the booth. Yep. It's like, yeah. I mean, Politico. They've got to. They got to walk you through it. Like, here's this mysterious species known as conservatives. You've never met one in real life, but here's what they believe. They believe that we shouldn't, you know, remove the genitals of young people. How weird. It's like what is, it's like they're walking into the Africa, you know, African jungle here and they're like having to describe all the different species they see. It's like, dude, there's get no out way. a little bit. Get out of there's your There's no enclaves. way these authors these authors have to pay a minimum of four thousand a month for rent, right? Yeah. Like there's no way <laughs> they true. pay anything on that. They all that. live in a major city. Yeah. Yeah. It's a rough life. And I wanna give I wanna give um Russ uh Vought credit. He gave a really good definition of Christian it's nationalism actually as well. He pronounces it vote, by the way. Vote. I apologize. All uh, right. Go out and vote. Um, so my own definition of Christian nationalism would be this, an orientation for engaging in the public square that recognizes America as a Christian nation, where our rights and duties are understood to come from God, where our primary responsibilities as citizens are for building and preserving the strength, prosperity, and health of our own country. That sounds a lot like the mission statement of Catholic vote. Like we're kind of... Definitely allies handsh- there. Handshake meme. I mean... Right. Um, even, even, and I want to, like, if we could for a second... Because I think people shudder at the word nationalism. And he gave a really good definition of nationalism that I think is worth thinking about. Um, So nationalism is a political philosophy that says independent nation states are the best way to organize governments that both, one, avoid the chaos and insecurity of tribes and clans, and two, preserve the freedom and self-determination that globalism or imperialism precludes. 
Nationalism is not just a patriotic love for one's country, but a commitment to prioritize the needs and interests of one's own country over others, not unlike parents who prioritize their family over others or pastors who prioritize their local church over others. Here's the thing about the way ideas work too, because you have to understand something like that, you know, you're in your 20s, right? You just hit your 25 or whatever. And that just seems like- 26. The definition, okay, whatever. The definition <laughs> of nationalism seems to you to be like elementary, like kind of obvious, like not really that controversial. Like, I mean, you can believe it or not. Sounds kind of good, right? That's kind of the way you're taking it. Just so you have to understand a little bit where I'm coming from. I'm at Generation X and we were in the shadow of the boomers. You know, every boomer culture loomed large or everything we did as Gen Xers. And boomers were taught from a very young age how evil nationalism was because that was associated with the emperor of Japan. It was in, uh, and obviously fascist Italy and, of course, Nazi Germany, which, you know, they were all hyper nationalist because in addition to being evil. And so the, the, the thought was that these three countries that were hyper nationalist, which were also spreading evil ideology in the case of you know, uh, territorial fascist ambitions of Japan and Italy and then Nazi Germany, which, of course, the word Nazi, what it did, it's, the Nazis didn't come up with that term. That's Churchill calling them because they're National Socialists. National mm -hmm. Socialists, yeah. He just called them Nazis, you know, and that stuff. Hey, Josh, Josh, real, real quick, could I ask you, uh, was it also associated with World War One as well? Or not as strongly? Not as strongly. Not as I strongly. Mean, the, okay. Yeah, and, and, and so like, the you know, because there was people, there was people who were nationalist. I mean, the nationalist movement was very big in the in the late 1800s. And it's, you know, Italy didn't form into a nation state until the 1800s, late 1800s. Same with Germany's. Like, this was a big movement all across Europe in the, in the 19th century. And so World War One happens, and then you got these alliances, and that, that was a catastrophe or whatever. And then Germany gets snubbed after World War One, and Hitler's comes into this vacuum in a horrific way, obviously. And so then nationalism gets associated with Nazi Germany and then Italy and Japan and in a way where it's very easy for people to say, well, we, sh we should trade with other countries and we should try to, you know, have peace and try to work things out. And like most Americans are like, I'm perfectly happy with that. That does, you know, so if, if that's what we're talking about in the immediate post-World War II era of, you know, international diplomacy trade between nations, relative peace. Obviously, there's still a Cold War and proxy wars. I'm not saying there was it was placid. Most Americans are like totally fine with that. If we mean globalism to the extent that became over with these trade agreements with China, where it's like, hey, this, see, this is what this is why our politics has, has really become distorted recently, because in the 1990s, businessmen wanted to get made the case that we should have free trade with China. And there are a lot of Americans that were worried about this because they have a billion people, they're a very poor country, and the, you know, the, the thought was that regime, they, they could right? manipulate their economy in such mm -hmm. a way that they could ruin all wholesale industries in the United States. Well, and this was a big Nixon play too, right? Like he thought that they we could basically democratize them through trade. Yeah, he's, he, he thought that by recognizing China so we can begin, begin having trade with China, you know, and maybe opening that country up and so they're you know they would be a little bit more open to ideas as well and you know that's one thing and then we try that was in the 70s and then and then in the 90s we're like let's take it a step further the late 90s with clinton let's actually have free trade with china it's called most favored nation status and basically you 
what you do, what we did with that is we said, we have these agreements. Rather than negotiate a, a, a new agreement with a country, we just say, we'll have our trade agreement with you the same as the best country that we have it with, which is Canada, which we have almost no regulations with, you know, trade. And that was a big controversial thing. It would come up for vote like every year, every year. And then finally, it's like, let's make it permanent. And that's what we did in 2000. And the problem with that, I mean, so businessmen were like, hey, this will be really good. China will have more trade. They'll become more of the League of you know, Nations in a sense. They'll, you know, the democratization of the people, people will have freedom to buy things and there'll be new ideas. And China will kind of eventually become more market oriented and less communist and more free. Now, that's an argument. That's an argument. Could it happen? Maybe. I kind of, I was like, I remember thinking that that'd be really great if that were happening. I'm not sure it'll work. But the businessmen that were promoting that theory wanted to get fat and rich off of it too. They were looking at a market of a billion customers. So they, you know, they're putting forward this argument that was convenient for them. But at the end of the day, they didn't really care. And the reason why we know they didn't care is that as the Chinese government would tighten the screws and say, now, wait a minute now, to order to do business in China, you have to do X, Y, and Z. You have to change this movie. You can't put that scene in here and you got to do this and you can't do that. And the businesses are all like, we want money, so we'll do it. And then now we have a Chinese state that is, uh, you know, has a social credit score. And, you, you know, every time you say the wrong thing, you won't, now you won't be able to go on a train. I mean, it's like crazy. Not only were the billionaires and the big corporations getting fat, but Americans as a as a whole, we totally fed into that, right? So how do you think Tamu ended up being the number one ad on the Super Bowl this year? It's because we all love our Chinese goods that are so cheap and that we can't even compete as an American. We don't make things anymore. We just consume things from China. So not only was this happening at a big global elite level, but I mean, we just ate it up. It is totally addictive to to buy from China and have this deal with China. Um, yeah, and on, under the Christ, under the Christian nationalism framework, you would have to think what's going to be best for our country. Is it going to be best for our country to have really cheap surplus Chinese goods, but not have well paying manufacturing jobs in our country uh, or factory jobs in general, uh, or the other way around? And like, it just felt like that that trade off was never fully like transparent to the people or people made those decisions based on greed rather than what's best for it was a boiling frog situation right totally total boiling frog situation because i was i've been reading this book um shout out shout out allison if she's listening she gave me this book another book by robert putnam about like it's about what happened to the kids i can't remember the title of it but it's talking about what's changed between 1950 i think he wrote this book in 2015 and he was describing like a, a town in 1950 uh where uh, you know, one parent worked, uh, there was plentiful jobs for people with high school degrees that could pay and support an entire family. Um, the rich and the poor lived in the same communities for the most part. So rent parishes were mixed. Yeah. Gated communities. There wasn't gated communities as much. Yeah. So every, well, communities were mixed more broadly, like neighborhoods. Yeah. And like basically the, the mores of that time, uh, there was a shared cultural consensus to, to work hard, um, to be modest. So like rich people weren't flaunting their wealth and poor people were basically trying their hardest to hide that they were poor. Um, there was plenty of opportunities for upward mobility. So like parents that didn't have high school degrees, like kids were able to get into college for reasonable prices to be able to advance a career, all that. And then you just shift over to 2015 is when he's writing the book. 
how much of a separation the upper like third of society has from the bottom third in that towns are now split by income. So there's like poor people live with poor people, rich people live with rich people. They're not really interacting. The subdivision phenomena, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, two parents work now in most households, like college degree educated um, households, both people have it and then their kids have a surplus of resources. But then if you don't have a college degree, there's so there's no longer those jobs that gave you that opportunity basically to support an entire family off of high school education. Um, but unfortunately, because colleges become so expensive or just other uh, other different variables, it's hard for people to get there. So anyway, it just kind of described like the fabric of society is kind of pulling apart a little bit. And I'd have to say like the China phenomenon definitely went towards that. But this all kind of reminds me of what Tucker says about like uh, truckers. Like if we could just eliminate trucking jobs overnight with electric vehicles, he said, he's like, that's not a good trade to me. I would not do that. Driverless vehicles, you're right. Driverless vehicles, correct. So be, be precisely because the number one job for like high school educated Americans right now is a trucking job that will actually pay pretty well. So like what's more important to our country as a whole, to to our citizens, probably that over like, I don't know. Another 2% goods profit being a couple or whatever, cents. right? Exactly, right. So like we need to be well, thinking about these trade-offs. Yeah, no, that's the thing is we never think of the trade-offs. I agree with you. I, I also would just caution that the 1950s were a bit of an anomaly from an economic standpoint because after World War II was over, London's in ruins. Germany is being rebuilt from the ground up. Um, you know, France, you know, is was invaded, you know, by the Nazis or whatever. So, so many of these powers, you know, they're having to rebuild their industrial base. And the United States was still very much, I mean, it's not like we were, with the exception of a few planes hitting the West Coast, we're our engine was good to go and we were able to help fuel the post-world economy and that put us at a competitive advantage um, in, in many ways. And so we were kind of operating in a surplus. I mean, it's like, you know, it, you're, it's like if you think about it as a competition, all these other countries were kind of, you know, sidelined. They had, if they were teams, half their teams were injured. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, I, I do want to kind of help people understand. That. I understood the, I understand the comprehensive argument, but I think back to the nationalism argument, like it's more important for our country to have well-paying jobs I available 100% for citizens. I 100% agree with that, Tom. No disagreement yeah. there. So, and the only other thing I would say is that part of the reason why people feel like they need to have two incomes is because, and this is I, the discussion I had a little bit with Tim Carney in that up, upcoming interview. Part of it is that we assume that we need things, but they're really just wants. It, but, but the social pressure from momfluencers or people at your school or whatever. Stanley the other parents, Cups. Mugs. Sorry. It, it, can, it can feel quite, it can, it can feel quite, a, 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 it can feel overbearing this pressure. Like, well, I we all have to go on a vacation every year to Florida or whatever. We all have to have the nicest, newest car. We all have to have the biggest house. We have to update our kitchen. We have to do all these things. And there's no sense of trade-offs. It's like, well, that's why we can't have, we, we couldn't possibly afford four or five kids. And how, you know, what kind of car would we have? And taking five, you know, can you imagine a family of six taking all their kids to to Disney World? That'd be insane. It's like, yeah, because it's a stupid place to go anyway. <laughs> so can part I, of it is I that interject? we built in our minds that this Eric, we got to do I just this. have a little anecdotal anecdotal here. So as you know, I'm 35 months pregnant or 35 weeks pregnant and it feels like forever, but I'm starting to get more and more of those postcards in the mail about like, you know, here's your upscale baby boutique you can go shopping at. And it is driving me crazy. I got one in the mail and it goes, the three things you need in your hospital bag. <laughs> the first one was, 
yeah, the first thing you need is, of course, this like photo shoot robe for mom in the hospital. The next thing you need are personalized ecological baby name tags for that first baby photo shoot in the hospital. The third thing you need are monogrammed muslin baby swaddle blankets with the baby's name on them. And I'm like, false, false, false. No needs here. The hospital will give you something to wear. It will give the baby something to wear. And the kid can't read. So you don't need a $75. But again, it's that language of, like you said, Josh, this baby, like a baby costs. That the, that set would have cost me $160 right out of the bay. I mean, that's like what I pay my insurance for the hospital. What you really need is like a granola bar, a bottle of Advil, I know, and a right? flask. Exactly. My little hidden flask to celebrate. The next podcast is going to be on have marketing copywriters become too powerful? Are they too good? Oh my gosh. Uh, We need to get back to Christian nationalism. No more uh, marketing copywriting. No more monogrammed blankets. So bring it back to just wrap up on the Christian because we got to move on. But the Christian nationalism conversation, basically no one should ever feel ashamed or like weird about saying you're a Christian nationalist as we've broken down in all the terms, all of it's completely reasonable being a nationalist. Uh, Josh kind of went on the, the world war II history route, but I think if anything, a little bit more nationalism would be great for our country. Things that come to mind, uh, our cities falling apart, homelessness and our border uh, could use a little bit of nationalism love instead of activity in the world economic forum and UN. Um, and then Christian, we, we share a Christian heritage in our country and that's nothing to be ashamed about. Um, and that's just also the truth. I, I've been seeing these like weird, I think it's Microsoft's AI is really bad, but uh, I think someone shared in Slack this morning is like a picture of George Washington crossing the Delaware and they like put a black woman as George Washington, like crossing the Delaware. And I'm like, the, no matter how much AI revisionist history has happened, like we have a Christian nation. If you'd like to go confirm, go back and read the Federalist Papers, go back and read the Declaration of Independence, go back and read the Constitution. It's everywhere. Read works from our founding fathers. I mean, George Washington, actually a uh, sneaky Catholic maybe, but definitely a Christian. So we we have a shared Christian heritage and there's nothing to be ashamed about for that. But uh, we're going to get into some election talk here. So this one set off the alarm bells, I think, because it was written by Nate Silver. So Nate Silver came out with um, his newest projection on the election. He is a left-leaning um, pollster. And well, I believe I believe though he name he made his name in the 2016, right? Is that correct, Josh? Because yeah, he and the... he's more of a he's more of a statistician than he is a pollster himself. He he goes through he combs through all the different polls from a statistical standpoint and and breaks it down. And he would say this poll is junk, this poll is bad. And he was like one of the first lefties. Like, yeah, actually, there's a path right before the election. There's a path. There is a path for Trump. Trump could win this to win actually. And people thought he was out of his mind. So, so he wrote an article. Thank you for the clarification on that, gang. But uh, Nate Silver wrote an article basically sounding the bell saying that uh, Biden can't win at this point. Uh, a few of the things that he brought up were he's not doing things that a traditional campaign would do because of his advanced age. So, for example, the Super Bowl interview, that's like a layup. The fact that he didn't do that is pretty crazy. Uh, he's, he's saying he's not going to debate Trump, um, which any normal, I think, Every presidential candidate probably is engaged in some form of debate. He might be the first to not do that. So there's things like that that are happening to where he's pushing in the wrong direction, of course. And Trump, he's seeing some spots where Trump is really gaining in certain directions. So, Josh, what you wanted to talk about this article. Like, What really stuck out to you as someone that follows elections very closely? 
Yeah, I mean, the thing is, um, what what Nate Silver is saying is at this point, Biden is a a below replacement level candidate, which is kind of funny because like I remember in 2015 when Biden was thinking about running for president in 2016 and I was worried because I thought he was going to if he ran in 2016, he would win because he was sharp. Like this idea, some people are saying, oh, the reason why he, he, you know, talks the way he does is because he's a stutterer. It's like, give me a break. Go watch the videos right. of 2015, 1989, you know, all, in 1988 when he first ran for president. The guy was I still full baloney. I think Biden has always been horrible, but he was sharp and he would talk very fluently. This, So this idea that, oh, it's because he stutters, it's a, it's a baloney argument. Silver made the point that if he were 10 years younger, he might still be a 65-35 favorite to win, like almost, you know, two to one. But he said, but if his campaign is substantially encumbered by his age, he's probably the underdog. Um, and, and, the, and the fact is, it was a little bit easier to pull this off in 2020 because Biden was able to, because of COVID, run a basement campaign, basically stay in his basement all the time. And you had the lackey media on the side, so it didn't really matter. But you're right. The Super Bowl. I mean, you're talking like 100 million Americans watching it and you don't want to do it. Now, did you see the White House just put out a statement? I don't know if it's uh, just Wednesday or Tuesday where Joe Biden talked about how we need to stay in NATO and how Trump being against NATO was bad. And he, of course, was, you know, hop jumping all over Trump's comments on NATO. Right. But if you watch it, it was a two minute statement, that video statement that was released by the White House. And. I noted there was at least 29 cuts. That, that is kept, that unbelievable. It was insane. That is unbelievable. The guy can't he can't put together seven seconds. They got to hatch together 38 pieces of, of video to get him to talk for two minutes. How many times, how many hours do they spend recording this two-minute thing? <laughs> I mean, it's insane. Yeah. And so people are going to ask themselves, do you want to reelect this guy? He would be 86 years old at the end of his second term. If he lives that long, right? <laughs> if he lives, right? Doesn't no, genuinely. So I mean, because I was even so he just fell on Air Force One again yesterday, and I was just thinking to myself, this is the age where like my great grandparents started falling, and like that's potential like could put you in a wheelchair, could potentially kill you territory. Like if you slip in the bathroom, break a hip or something. It's it's kind of crazy saying about this is like the president of the United States, but that's genuinely if you just took away the president label. This is where you start getting concerned about that kind of thing. Well, not only and, the president, but the only candidate for the Democrat Party right now. Right. Like, <laughs> well, and, and no sympathy. The Democrats no, did this to themselves. None. They did not have to run him again. They could have had him step down after restoring decency to the White House or whatever, but they chose to keep running him. And it's like, I mean, they're about Don't to- Don't they realize that there's a funeral home just down the street called the United States Senate? Like, they could put him there. <laughs> <laughs> Mercer, seriously, Jay Murphy. But the other thing, yeah, maybe I'll I'll save I'll save that for the Twilight Zone. But there's, I think, the age is the biggest thing that I think there were people that even voted for Trump Trump in 2016 that maybe didn't vote for him in 2020 that are now looking at the two options to be like, all right, like whoever's not the dementia patient, which is crazy because Trump's getting up there in age too, but he's definitely not at Biden levels of you know, dementia. And Nate Silver's point is that we had a good year and a half where we had very high inflation and the economy was, you know, teetering and going kind of little sideways there. And the economy now has started to improve since the late summer. 
And so you would think then that Biden's poll numbers would start rising again, but they haven't because his advanced age has caused voters uh, to be concerned. And so that's why, of course, it's an issue. And it's an issue that the, the press can't even ignore. And so now you're starting to see the press is kind of going a, with a, a little bit of an insurance policy here. They started running glowing articles about Vice President Kamala Harris to try to convince Americans that she's not so horrible because they're like, we, this might be our only option. We'll and see. Yet, certain Democrats are still holding on to Biden. Amy Klobuchar, Klobuchar our dear friend, um, you know, infinitely memeable. She showed up on several Sunday talk shows this past weekend talking about how, well, I met with Biden. Joe and I had a great conversation about deep foreign policy. And this is a man who's still sharp. She's basically saying, like, don't believe your lying eyes. <laughs> believe me, he's really fine. So there there continues to be this contingent that is. I would have loved to have heard that fine. conversation, Erica, wouldn't you? I mean, like, oh, I know. What, what did he I say? Come like, and listen? I just got off the phone with, you know, Helmut Kohl. Like, oh, you mean the guy's been dead since 1988? <laughs> right. All right, cool. Tell me about that. Oh, my gosh. Unbelievable. Keep pushing. All right. We roll Twilight Zone now. We got Erica. Right. You were first up. So I have alluded to my um, upcoming maternity leave and you know I've, I've now breastfed six children and god be praised with varying degrees of difficulty but it's always it's tough like most women have a hard time with breastfeeding it is natural but not easy is how i like to say it so todd and i were talking and he's like oh well great news we could be able to fix the problem for you this time turns out according to the university of sussex nhs trust Male lactation is not only possible, but it is just as good for the baby. And I said, Todd, sign me up. <laughs> I'm kidding. I would never do that for anyone who's listening who's a little serious. Yeah, so it's true. We, we saw this in the tablet uh, over, over the weekend. Dr. Rachel James, medical director of the NHS National Health Services Trust over in the UK, um, this was the first British uh, entity to use terms like chest feeding, which actually Yale Hospital offers chest feeding classes. So while I'm recovering as the gestational parent, Todd could be the co-lactating parent, which is what they call the breastfeeding trans woman man. Um, the co-lactating parent could learn chest feeding. Uh, she wrote a letter last fall to an organization called Children of Transitioners, in which she claimed that the term human milk which she called the ideal food for infants, is meant to be neutral and is not gender biased. And uh, so I just dug in a little bit on what kind of drugs are needed to induce lactation in males who don't have breast tissue. So here's an example. They've seen lactation uh, occur in males who have been given antipsychotic chlorpromazine or thorazine, males who have been given steroids, or the heart medication, digoxin or lenoxin, uh, and these can these can cause uh, increased prolactin levels in men, and then of course a round of this sounds so female natural. hormones. I know this sounds so natural and in keeping with the the way we are built uh, physically. So this was just my Twilight Zone dig into what would we have to give Todd oh, in yeah. order to <laughs> make him like. So here's the thing, though. What would possess a man to think, I want to try to do this? You know this what I'm saying? This is my and, other question. Guys, this is not fun. This isn't like... like if, if it didn't work out for my wife, I'd be like, I'm already, I'm going to run to the drugstore and buy some, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to. 
This just confirms the fact that sexual fetishes make people crazy because you would have yes. to be oh, insane yeah. Yeah. to want to breastfeed if right. you didn't like that wasn't like I'm going to give myself this like nipple chafing. Well, or they, it's horrible. Oh, it's, it's a total. <laughs> it's a total fetish. Yeah, it it's is. A, it's also it is a fetish and it's also like a pregnancy envy thing. Like that was this one woman. She had uh, three kids and her husband left her and became trans because he was jealous of her being pregnant. I was like, what in the world? Like, some of these people just, you know. What could possibly make a man be jealous of his pregnant wife? That's all I got to say. It's That's crazy talk. I've never crazy. once been like, man, I really wish I was carrying around an extra 50 pounds of fat. Yeah, and to... it's just these people, they need to be treated. Not well, I do that. Like... That's not the part that that's <laughs> my, that's not the part that gets my attention. It's, it's the whole bowling ball. And I'm like, yeah, Ollie, that would that that sounds like that would hurt. Yeah, my my eleven year old, almost eleven year old son was was observing me trying to get up off the couch the other night, and he goes, "Mom, that looks uncomfortable. I'm like you're just noticing." <laughs> and he's like, "I'll never have to do that, will I?" I'm like, "Nobody." Like, yeah. And then your husband comes to the corner, like high five. Yeah, he's like, like yes. guys, <laughs> Y chromosome forever. Yeah, but we have to take out the trash, buddy. That's the rules, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's... exactly. There's trade offs. There's <laughs> trade offs. You will have to take out the trash for the rest of your life. I'll take that trade though. Um, I mean, yeah. it's just like they, I do they think do it's good. I, look, I do think it's good that we men are starting to appreciate more w women who are pregnant, all that kind of stuff. That's good. I just want women to also appreciate the fact that, you know, like, who are the guys up? Who are the guys out on, on the oil refinery? Who are the guys, you know, catching fish? Uh, you know, in the in the art, you know, outside the shore, the yeah, Alaska shores. Thank you, like, men. Thank you, men. Well, and fighting our wars for us. Thank you. You guys have you know, a hard who, who time. Who are too. the who are the NYPD cops that yeah. work hard to learn dance routines to dance for us? You know not men. Mean? <laughs> <laughs> That's not us. Like, ah, yeah. Maybe we should bring men back to the force. You know what I'm saying? That was a video where I was like, ah, yeah, we could probably use more male cops in New York City. Um, okay, Josh, I believe you are next. <laughs> okay, so. We'll slide past that one. Tom's favorite congressman, AOC. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I was hoping you would do this. She was elected thanks to a casting call. <laughs> this is true story. So the Justice Democrats, you know, it's a communist outfit. They uh, they put out a casting call for people to audition for the role of a congressman. And they got 10,000 people applied for it. This is in, you know, one of the districts inside New York City. And AOC's brother, like my sister, sends in the app, sends in an app, her resume, and of course they're looking through it, and then they, they have her audition for it. And this is one of those things where it's like she is very articulate. She is also a beautiful woman, and so of course she did very well. And they're like, we should have this person. She's a star, and in fact, she was a star, and she's and so just to me, it cracks me up. Like they brag about it. Like they, there's even her. On, she's on tape saying, "Yeah, and I." And they put out this edition, and I applied for it. And I'm just like, "Can you imagine?" She said she, Classic she, said New she York. was. Um, this well, this is first off. This is all on camera, by the mm -hmm. way. Right. Like it, this is not conspiracy theory. It's on video. We can put it in the show notes. This is so crazy. She said, "I was just waiting tables when I put in this audition call, not expecting anything. All of a sudden, I'm a U.S. congressman. Now she's writing her laws, people. This is great." Now she is writing our laws. And like, does that, 
should that bother everyone? Like, isn't the whole, maybe people lie about this, but like, shouldn't politicians get in the game to make a better country instead of just answering a casting call? To You're such cash an idealist. On... That's, that's great. Here's, here's, here's the Mercer hot take. You know what Republicans should do? They should do the same thing. Who are the most successful, who are the most successful Republican candidates in the last 30 years, would you say? I mean, Trump in 2016. Ted Cruz. So you got Ronald Reagan. What was he before he was a politician? Movie star. Movie star. Oh, yeah. Donald Trump, before he was elected president, what did he do? Reality TV. Uh, movie, well, TV, TV star. star. Yeah. The Apprentice. Yeah. So. Who else would you say? I don't know. The thing is. Republicans are losers, so it's hard to find a winning Republican. I don't know. I feel like J- J.D. Vance has gotten a lot of buzz. Yeah, he's great. But, but he's, he's like authentic. an like he's, he's not an he, actor. He, he's an author. He's an author. I mean, there is a movie look. about him. Hillbilly Elegy. True. Yeah. There's a movie about him. The thing is, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of saying this provocatively, but a little seriously too. Like honestly, the ability to communicate is, an, you know, is often considered is very underrated on the Republican or conservative side. It's like who cares? It's just someone from plucked from TV. The thing is, it's not easy to try to communicate in long sentences. I mean, we have fun on our, with our podcast here or whatever, but at the end of the day, you need to be, if you're on TV and if you're in front of cameras and reporters are asking you questions, you need to be able to think on your feet. And we can't have Mitch McConnell, you know, frozen. <sighs> you know, you need someone who can get talk. Through casting no, call. he would not be cast. Oh, uh, Tommy Tuberville, former coach of Auburn. Maybe we need more college coaches. College coaches, yeah, that would, football coaches would be great. He's been good. Um, okay, so speaking of our resident uh, TV star, uh, Donald Trump. So I was well. Okay, maybe I'll do a combo. So President's Day was Monday. Happy President's Day, and uh, you know, this this is the time when all of these quote unquote scholars of presidents get together and they're like, let's rank the top presidents. <clears throat> if you'd like to play along at home, uh, they ranked President Biden and President Trump. Uh, I'll give you a second to, to mentally guess. Uh, President Biden came in at 14th. This is on on the Hill. Uh, and Donald Trump, surprisingly, unsurprisingly, dead last. So uh, no surprise where- What was the metric? What are the metrics they're like judging them on, Pogo? Trust the science, oh, okay. honestly. All right, all right. Don't um, ask questions, woman. <laughs> don't ask questions. So that's number one. Number two, so this has to do with Trump. And I was actually just having a conversation about this of like, why maybe that Nate Sil- Silver argument's kind of coming through and people are kind of turning back around on Trump. I personally think all of the lawfare against Trump has really just made him into a martyr for a lot of people and maybe even caused people to take a second look into Trump beyond just that he's like orange mad bad, orange mad bad, racist, Trump derangement syndrome. Like if you just watched, you know, mainstream media, you would have a very specific view of him. But I think the fact that all these lawsuits have come against him, I think the first thing that people they wanted people to think is like, oh look, he's such a criminal. But instead I think people are kind of seeing, well, what's he actually being tried for? And I think the first one of that was Mar a Lago for sure, where you're like, okay, you're raiding his house for documents. But Biden also had some documents laying around and there was nothing on that. So that's kind of weird. Um, but the most recent was in New York City. So New York City, he just was uh, fined uh, with interest. It'll be around $450 million. Um, and if you, I, there's a viral clip that went around from this Justice Arthur F. Angoran. Uh, he's the uh, 
person trying him. He's the judge trying him. There was like a video of Trump looking really angry in, in the courtroom. And then this judge kind of like smiling for the camera. Like it's, it's, it's all, it's a complete show. But what really was, I was trying to look into this to see like, okay, so what are they getting him for? And, and they're claiming that he inflated his net worth to obtain favorable treatment from banks and other lenders. And so I looked into that a little bit further. I was like, okay, well, who's the you know victim here? Like, did he not pay back loans or did was there something wrong here? Turns out all the loans that he got from these lenders, he paid back in full and actually made money for these lenders. So he received a loan that he paid back and then made money for them. And he built a building in the meantime. In the meantime, did, of course, had a lot of successful businesses. He's being... Tr- charged $450 million for a criminal reason for making money for people that lent him money. I just don't understand. Well, and not only that, they're shutting down his business for three years in New York. He can't do business. He can't operate business in New York City for three years, which like I was listening to some other business leaders in the New York City area. The one that's really been on the warpath is Mr. Wonderful from Shark Tank. But he's like, this is a shot across the bow at all business owners in New York City. What do you think we do? We go places we tell them, hey, I'm worth this much based on our metrics, which we deem to be reasonable and that they choose to accept. They lend us money. We make them money. And then like this is how business works in New York City. He's being charged for doing business. And so like, what's to stop them from going against people, going after people that they just don't like now at this point? Apparently, because there's no victim. There's really no victim in this crime. I, I don't understand. And so uh, he has to pay back this money. Of course, he dropped... Uh, the Trump, the never back down high tops. I don't know if you guys have seen those. <laughs> Sweet gold okay. high tops. Cop, cops some kicks, but like, dude, you got to do something to pay back this amount of money is like a shocking amount of money for anyone. And I know Trump is like, you know, got, he's he's having to pay for all these lawsuits because people are coming in from all angles. So we have that one. Uh, I don't know if anyone's following the Fannie Willis saga. Speaking of Christian nationalism, uh, a lot of people were pointing out a little bit of hypocrisy because Fannie Willis was honored with a Black Achievement Award at her local um, church in Georgia. And uh, she was told that she was quoting how weapons were formed against her won't prosper. Um, This is a woman who embezzled money from taxpayers, uh, slept with a subordinate, and then paid him in cash so it couldn't be traced back. Um, And then also wore her dress backwards for the hearing, but truly one of the most entertaining hearings I've ever seen. It was like the Maori show. I have no idea how this woman became a lawyer and or got voted as the DA. But these are the people... So like... This person, that case is kind of crumbling. And then you see in New York, he's getting gone after for doing business. And it's like, I don't know when the lesson's going to be learned here. I think maybe they're just hoping for a shot in the dark, like one of these will keep him from being able to run. I just think this is making him more powerful. I think for people actually paying attention or now have been forced to dig into this, you're seeing like they're they're going after him for nothing in a lot of these cases. Yeah, I mean, I think... I think like for his for his allies and maybe people who are on the fence, it's making them have a second look, like you said. But the reality is, too, this is very expensive for Trump. I mean, I was listening to Morning Wire, and at this point, in attorney's fees alone for all these court cases, he's over $76 million, right? Meanwhile, the Biden administration, for all of the like craziness, Nate Silver, like he can't win, they are they are racking up the dollars. I mean, they have now far exceeded any records now in terms of fundraising. And, you know, Trump keeps here's another 15 million there, another 300 million there. I mean, at some point, the numbers don't even mean anything anymore, it seems like. But that that really does hurt eventually. And it's going to hurt him in the pocket. 
um, which translates into power in the in the ballot box for the Biden administration or whoever ends up running. I don't know if I, no amount of money is going to be over, able to overcome the fact that he has dementia publicly in front of everyone. That's like my thing with that. And then I guess no amount of money will be able to overcome the fact that Trump seemingly is being unfairly persecuted. Like there's a certain amount of um, free publicity that I, I think comes right. from that. But hope you're right. We'll see, man. It's going to be a weird. We've put it's ourselves in a weird, weird situation. Yeah. Because so <laughs> yeah. Super Tuesday, Super Tuesday's coming up, and we don't even care. I know, yeah, like buckle really. up. Twenty twenty four is only going to get weirder. Oh yeah, Nikki Haley's not dropping out. Josh, right. do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> well, actually, I gotta guys, I gotta do this. I gotta vote next week. You know, Mich- the primary here in Michigan. I was thinking about voting in the Democratic primary, guys. Lib Josh. You well, do tell. I don't know. I mean, you know, you have the congresswoman from Dearborn saying that. Uh, to express their uh, disapproval of Joe Biden, Democrats should come out and vote for not Biden, but for uncommitted. Because on the Democratic ballot, there's Joe Biden and there's uncommitted. And so she's trying to get a lot of Democrats to come out and vote uncommitted to embarrass Joe Biden. I thought, hey, maybe I'll join this effort. Maybe I'll have two chances this year. I can vote against Joe Biden twice. Who is the who is that congresswoman again? Is it Tlaib or no? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it is to leave? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Dude, Dear boy. We need, all right. N- next meme for the loop cast is like the rival gangs. And it's like Rashid to lead and then Josh. And they're like, hold it. Handshake. Over Biden. Uncommitted <laughs> together. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I man, like That's it. awesome. I mean, hey, well, you uh, know, the Democrats, the, they said they could cross the party line and vote in the New Hampshire primary. So what stops, you know, Republicans in Michigan? Why not? Do it. Well, this, this is the, yeah, this is the last episode in this office. Uh, exciting times for Catholic Vote. We're making a lot of big moves. I'll be in a new space pretty soon. Uh, if you want to follow us uh, along on the St. Joseph Consecration, that is happening on Friday. Join Josh and I for that. That's been very good. Uh, if you want to help out the show, reviews, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, five stars, if you please. And then we are live every Monday. YouTube, come hang out. We had a we had a good one this Monday. A lot of people came through. Josh was fighting in the comments as always. Uh, and we have a lot of fun with those. So if you want to join us, noon Eastern time, every Monday, we'll be there. Subscribe to the YouTube, Loopcast. If you want to uh, talk to me, send in some mailbag, loopcast at catholicboat.org. And we appreciate you all so much. And we will see you guys in the next one. Uh, St. Fidel, St. Thomas More, Our Lady, Our Lady of Guadalupe, pray for us. And we will see you guys in the next one. Peace.